We're going to do something a little different today. I hope this works, so bear with me. I hope you uh, find this useful and uh, are encouraged and inspired by it, and if not, um, you can beat me up afterwards. Um, um, it's going to be a little different. We uh, Grant's um, uh, just finished uh, doing a little uh, study in James, uh, and Nate's going to be looking at Ephesians. I'm going to do something a little different and talk uh, about something that I think is critically important, something we're exhorted to in Scripture. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 16, 13, one of my favorite verses, and see what that has to say. First of all, I want to take a, a springboard kind of off of that and some other passages also. It says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. So the question is, how are we to be on the alert? Be watchful, in other words. How are we to be watchful? How are we to stand firm in the faith? And what do we do with that? Our study of Scripture is primary importance, obviously. We need to be in our own study time. We need to be in things like BTI. We need to be sitting under the preach word. We need to be spending time together as a family of brothers and sisters in Christ, exhorting and encouraging each other. The question is, how are we to be watchful or be on the alert, as the New American Standard puts it? How do we apply what we're learning intellectually and in our heart and letting us um, be uh, transformed to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. What do we do with all of this? How are we not to be just wrapped up in doctrine and knowledge, but um, is it just for that or is it for something else? Let me take you back a couple of years ago how we opened or in one of the lessons that I was teaching when we were talking about um, worldview and read to you again what, what we started that lesson with. <clears throat> a Western apologist once visited a tribal area of Africa and conducted an elaborate seminar for Christians on how to prove the existence of God. Afterwards, a, per a person came up and complimented him on his presentation but added politely that no one in that part of Africa doubted that God exists. What they wanted to know was which God to serve. The visitor meant well, but failed to understand the specific spiritual questions being asked by that particular culture. The more one understands about people's ideas, the better one can communicate the truth of Scripture and the gospel to them. That's why uh, one learns about cults and religions. That's why missionaries try to understand the cultures in which they live. But not enough Christians in the West put forth much effort into understanding the culture in which we live. New believers who come into the church bring their own worldviews with them. Those Christians already in the church who do not understand worldview issues will not realize when they are embracing non-Christian concepts. You can go to the movie and watch things, and it's very subtle sometimes, but there's all types of non-Christian concepts that are being taught and communicated and trying to convince you to a certain path uh, or, or way of thinking. Paul warned the Colossians not to allow themselves to be taken captive by philosophy in Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Most Christians assume that the best way to prevent that is to avoid learning anything contrary to what they believe. Now listen, that's really critical to what we're going to be talking about uh, a little further on in this lesson this morning. But like it or not, worldview issues are all around, pressing in from the surrounding culture. Instead of trying to completely shield oneself from the culture, Paul would advise a different approach, understanding something about the ideas that intrude in various ways and And error. Am I losing communication? Is it okay now? Okay. Biblically speaking, 
It is the Christian who should be doing capturing, not the other way around. Paul said he destroyed arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and took every thought captive to obey Christ. Am I going in and out? Okay, is this better? I've got better light here, too. Christians, <clears throat> in other words, Christians are to tear down intellectual strongholds in order to free those who are deceived spiritually and are held captive by forces of darkness. And boy, you just look at the culture around us, and those forces of darkness are really closing in. Paul knew the culture of his day. He could quote philosophers from memory, use their terminology, and examine their views from a Christian perspective or Christian worldview. Not enough Christians today can do that, including even pastors and counselors or even some Christian scholars. Western culture is undergoing sweeping and profound changes, especially here in the United States. I mean, we're following in the path of some of the things that Europe has already gone through. Like other periods of major change in history, there's a mixture of both our old culture and old way of thinking that's still influencing today, but we've lost our foundation that undergird uh, those old ways. Let me take you back now 3,000 years, and if you turn uh, to First Chronicles chapter 12, I want to talk about, or I want to read some scripture here. Let me set this up. This is a time of Saul and David. Saul had just been killed on the battlefield along with his sons Jonathan and the other son, and uh, now things were shifting toward uh, uh, moving uh, David in as king, but that took a, a national movement. It was God's plan to use all of the tribes and clans there to bring him and to put him in as the king over Israel. And let's pick up in Let's pick up in verse 19. So all these tribes, all these different mighty men of war are gathering and bringing their different groups to support uh, the quest to crown David as king. Of course, this is all God's plan, but this is the way that he was working to do this. And it says there, some of the men of Manasseh, deserted to David when he came with the Philistines for the battle against Saul. Yet he did not help them, for the rulers of the Philistines took counsel and sent him away, saying, At peril to our heads he will desert to his master Saul. As he went to Ziglag, these men of Manasseh uh, deserted to him. Ab uh, Adna, I'm not even going to pronounce those names. All the chiefs and thousands of Manasseh. They helped David against the band of raiders, for they were all mighty men of valor and were commanders in the army. For this day today, men came to David to help him until there was a great army, an army like an army of God. These are the numbers of the divisions of the armed troops who came to David to Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul over to him according to the word of the Lord. The men of Judah bearing a shield of spear were 6,800 armed troops of the Semonites, um, mighty men of valor for war, 7,100. Of the Levites, 4,600. The prince of Jehoiada, Jehoiada uh, of the house of Aaron, with him, 3,700. Zadok, a young man, mighty in valor, and 22 commanders from his own father's house. Of the Benjamites, the kinsmen of Saul, 3,000 of whom the majority had to that point kept their allegiance to that point kept their allegiance to the house of Saul. Of the Ephraimites, 20,800 mighty men of valor, famous in their father's houses. Of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were expressly named to come and make David king. Of Issachar, 
men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. Of Zebulun, 50,000 seasoned troops equipped for battle with all the weapons of war to help David with singleness of purpose. Of Nephtali, uh, 1,000 commanders with whom were 37,000 men armed with spield and shear. Of the Danites, 28,600 men equipped for battle. Of Asher, 40,000 seasoned troops ready for battle. Of the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh from beyond the Jordan, 120,000 men armed with all the weapons of war. All these men of war arrayed in battle order came to Hebron with a whole heart to make David king over all Israel. So let's stop right there. There's thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of men uh, that were named here to come and help David. Two groups, very small in number. One of them, we, can we put the slide up here? One of them we're going to talk about a little bit. Um, you ready? Verse 32 of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. 200 chiefs. Interesting, huh? Tens of thousands of men named. Uh, one group was only 22 men, and then this group, only 200 guys. Why would God focus on these 200 men? Okay. There we go. This is an interesting quote, I think, applicable to what we're talking about. And here's this verse. men who had understanding of the times. <clears throat> There's a, a, a theologian, I would not recommend that you follow him. Um, uh, he's got some kind of off ideas, I think, in some of his uh, doctrine, but he was well-respected and wrote quite a bit uh, of commentaries, and he had an exposition here on this particular verse. Um, his name's Albert Barnes. This was written about 100 and 50 years ago, he died 1870, and it was a, um, <clears throat> uh, he wrote extensively ab uh, about this verse. And I thought, even though some of his theology is a little off, he really had nailed this pretty well. And I want to read to you some of the things he wrote, because he, you know, it's a little bit older English, uh, but he expresses his thoughts extremely well. And... <clears throat> He says, uh, he's talking about this verse. I'm going to skip around in, in some of the things that he's written here. But he says, we are required by the authority of the Lord himself. And he's referring to a passage in Matthew 16, 3, to mark the signs of the times. In other words, to keep wide and wakeful eye on the revolving events of providence. You can also reference that same um, uh, expression that the Lord makes in chapter 24, verse 3. <clears throat> so we're to keep a watchful eye on the revolving events of providence, he says, with the view of discovering their bearing on the position and prospects of the church. It is no doubt generally supposed that religious men are very incompetent judges of public affairs. And that's certainly the perception today, I think, in, in many ways. And a lot of what he writes is applicable today, and that's why I think this is important to consider what he's saying here. Like the tribe spoken of in the text back in uh, First Chronicles here, this verse that we're looking at, they are, as a distinctive party, the smallest in the state. And like them, too, they live in comparative seclusion. They came from the very northern part of Israel and, and away from the cabals and contentions of the world. It is therefore presumed that they can have little uh, acquaintance with the movements which are going on around them. Let it be admitted that they are not, as a body, so conversant with the details of public transactions as those who are directly engaged about them. Yet still we hesitate not to say that they may be 
and they generally are even better fitted than these for apprehending the great moral principles which such transactions carry in their bosom and the manner in which they are likely to affect the welfare of the community. We need not remind you that religious men are accustomed to view questions of this kind in a very different light than the men of the world. Our worldview is different, right? The latter look upon them as they stand related to the opinions and interests of their fellow creatures. It is this, in this respect that religious men, men of enlarged and enlightened piety, have the advantage of mere worldly politicians. They form their estimate of passing events not as they influence the temporary interest either of one party or, or another, nor as they are reflected through the fluctuating medium of public opinion. They judge of them by a far higher and more comprehensive standard. They view them in connection with a great chain of providence. They compare them with the fixed purposes of the divine administration and with the unalterable rules of the divine word. And by examining therein the light of these clear and all-controlling principles, our worldview again, they are enabled to group in the disjointed and fragmentary measures of public men under a distinct moral classifications to analyze the impulses and the agencies from whence they uh, proceed. And by means of these testing and discriminating process, they are led to an understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. It is important to mark the connection between the two separate members of the, fat, the passage that we're looking at here, this First Chronicles, it is stated regarding the children of Issachar that they had understanding of the times. They comprehended the circumstances in which their country was replaced. They marked the spirit which prevailed among the people. It was not from any motives of mere curiosity that they studied the movements of the day, nor was it with the view of discanting upon them in private meetings or in popular assemblies, far less was it their object to busy themselves with public matters. In other words, they weren't involved directly in the politics of the day uh, with Saul and so forth, or in popular assemblies. Far less was it their object to busy themselves with public matters for personal ends or for party purposes the welfare of their country was the subject of their concern and the source of their inquiries. For that reason, it is incumbent upon us as office bearers and members of the Church of Christ to study the phenomena of the age in which we live to watch the moral forces that are operating on the mass of society, swaying the tide of public opinion and influencing the measures of men. And he goes on, in another part of this uh, analysis of this passage, and he says, we have here a very minute account, talking about this whole passage that we read and even the chapters that preceded it, a very minute account of the political, military, and religious position of things at that time. We find different persons resorting to David in larger or lesser numbers and welcomed as they came. And among the rest, there came a number of persons particular and distinct in character from all others. Instead of being told of their physical strength, as so many were in that passage we just read, um, their vigor, their prowess and skill in using swords and spears, their incomparableness in war, we are told that they were men who had understanding of the times and knew what Israel ought to do. Men of prediction, men of political intelligence and sagacity, men who could look about and see into things, who could interpret the, the prediction written upon a circumstance. The prediction written upon a circumstance. In other words, what was going, what's going on today and what's that going to lead to? who could tell what was the line marked out by such and such an event. They were not antiquarian men who could tell you of the past nor dreaming political, uh, poetical 
prophetic men talking about the future, but men who understood the times, men who felt great realities that were stirring about them. It was a great matter to have this understanding. God marked it out in his word. For the consequence of having it was, they deduced, what Israel ought to do, the movements that should be made, the things that the nation should determine upon, whether we should cast our lot with David or someone else. The accession of these men to David was, perhaps, of greater value than the thousands of fighting men for wisdom, of fighting men, for wisdom and valor strengthen more than the weapons of war. The wise man is strong. And these men, as a consequence of their understanding, ruled. Their brethren were at their command, commandment. They had influence. Other men and other minds recognized them as regal men. So I think you really captured the spirit of what God was trying to tell us by talking about these 200 men out of these thousands and tens of thousands of men and the importance of applying a worldview. I have a proposition for you to consider here this morning. And just so you understand where I'm going with this, and this is really rudimentary, and I know that you guys all um, understand this, but I want to read to you the definition of proposition, okay? And that's the act of offering or suggesting something to be considered, okay? So I'm going to, I'm asking you to consider something here um, and and adopt it uh, to be done, and that's part of the definition here. At our church banquet earlier this year, Steve joked, I've read every book published since 1900. That's not quite right. That was actually 1800 is what he meant to say. (laughs) I wish. My proposition is this. We can be like the exhortation of 1 Corinthians 16, be on the alert, act like men. And we can be like the men of Issachar, Issachar, men who had understanding of the times. We know what and know what Israel ought to do. My proposition is we can be those things by being well-read and by understanding that leads us to an understanding of our times. By, first of all, being founded in God's word in all of the things that I talked about, uh, you know, BTI, sitting under the preached word, fellowshipping together, all of those things are of prime importance. This is not a substitute for that. That is number one. But understanding the times means a whole lot more than just watching the nightly news. We can understand our culture by understanding how people think and how their view of events are, how reading even a novel helps us delve into the understanding of how somebody gets to the worldview that they have and how sin nature affects what they're thinking. Um, So all of those things are found by reading and by reading a very eclectic uh, uh, selection of different things. I want to take you up to this next slide here, which you've got just a momentary preview of. Um, apart from study of the Scripture, there's some really well-written things. I just put up, I, I didn't even try to list at the very top line all of the books that I think are a benefit along that line. But John Piper, obviously, has got some great books. One of my favorite books of all time is uh, The Pleasures of God that he wrote. Excellent, excellent book. And I'd certainly recommend that. Francis Schaeffer, of course. C.S. Lewis. A.W. Pink. Uh, Great. A.W. Pink's got a great uh, book about Elijah. That's the title of it. And it's an analysis of... uh, that hold, um, you know, his whole life and what he was involved in, and it's, it's just great. D.A. Carson, of course, J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. There's a lot to be learned there. It's not a, uh, uh, you know, a spiritual book. It's not something that you're going to learn a lot of Scripture from, 
But it, it, it gives you, and that's why I put that one uh, quote up there earlier, it gives you an application of that worldview. And uh, he's really good at communicating scriptural truths through um, hobbits and wizards and Gandalf and all of that. And then in the really secular world, Jack London, one of my favorite authors, some of the stuff that he wrote is great. Mark Twain is very insightful into human nature, and he does it in a way that's entertaining as well as uh, instructive. And I don't know where he was spiritually. He had uh, spiritual understanding. His wife got sick and died. He became very bitter toward God. So I'm, I'm not sure, but he still was very insightful. None of these guys necessarily spiritual, but you can learn a lot by reading them. Dashiell Hammett was probably the first author to write the modern kind of detective novels. Uh, Philip Dick wrote a lot of science fiction. Uh, Do Robots Dream of Electric Sheep is one of the... And it's actually made into a movie uh, by a different title, and I forget the name of that movie right now. John Le Carre... it's uh, actually written some very good things. Ken Follett. Um, here's some books that I've read just over the last couple of years. Uh, Valiant Ambition about George Washington and Benedict Arnold by Nathaniel Philbrick. Uh, great uh, history. It uh, reads like a novel, but it's a historical account. All of what Philbrick uh, writes is along that line. He also wrote Mayflower uh, about the pilgrims coming over. Philbrick is not a believer, so he has a very jaundiced view of some of the things that they did, but very instructful, I think, at the same time. Uh, Sea of Glory, about the exploring expedition that was um, uh, launched in 1838 where the United States sent their first um, expedition down into Antarctica and the South Seas and ended up with a collection that became the um, basis for the first um, uh, Smithsonian Institution. Uh, you're going to learn from all of these things, and it, it helps you see how to apply your worldview because you're seeing how other people think. Uh, um, Bunker Hill, about uh, also about the Revolutionary War, the events that preceded that battle and the events that, events that came after it. And then James Donovan, uh, excellent author. Not as uh, many volumes as Philbrick, Blood of Heroes. Uh, about the Alamo uh, and all the events preceding the battle itself and what happened afterwards. Uh, a terrible glory. Interesting story about uh, Custer. And, you know, a lot of these events and these people that I'm uh, talking about in these books that I've read misaligned by the popular notion of who these people are. Custer is a very interesting person. Uh, instrumental in uh, the other generals in the northern uh, army in the um, Civil War credited um, Custer as being instrumental in actually saving uh, the Battle of Gettysburg. If it hadn't been for what he did, they think they would have lost that battle. Uh, So you need to read some of these things, I think, to have your vision or your understanding of, of what happened in the past corrected. It helps us to understand where we are today because you see the beginnings of some of the things that get twisted uh, in our understanding uh, over time. Uh, Another author, these are all kind of historical things. Thunderstruck talks about the development of the wireless uh, by Marconi and uh, he weaves this into a serial killer that was going on at the same time. Uh, Fun read and instructive too. He also wrote Devil in the White City about the Chicago World Fair in 1892, I think it was, or 93, perhaps, uh, and a serial killer that was operating at that time, too, but very uh, interesting history. These things are are all true stories. Uh, And then in in the way of uh, fiction, The Spiral Road, probably one of the the forgotten volumes in history. It's out of print. It's hard to find, but really one of my favorite uh, novels of all time about a Dutch, young Dutch boy that wants to become a doctor, doesn't have the money to go to school, so he goes on the the Dutch pay for it. The government pays for it, and as part of paying them back, he has to 
serve uh, the Dutch government, so they send him to the Dutch um, <clears throat> um, holdings down in the Philippines. And so he goes in there, and he thinks he's going to learn all this stuff, and he gets connected up with a doctor back there, and he has to actually, his first introduction to him, he has to haul this big shipment of what he thinks are medical supplies that are marked PG. They're in a sealed box, and he has to go up these rivers and haul these boxes up river. And he finally gets there, and the doctor back there opens him up, and he finds, you know, much to Drago, the, the main character in here, much to his um, consternation, finds out that the PG marking meant pure gin. So it's, it's entertaining. But the, the message of the uh, story is that he thinks he's going to go back there and do all these great things and finds out he can't, and he gets really discouraged and disillusioned with what he sees how things operate, and then this spiral road down in his spiritual journey, and his um, uh, is marked out by he meets this missionary couple, and the wife is dying of leprosy, and he sees he sees in her a joy and a peace that you know he just can't explain and. Anyway, he comes to understand that she uh, is that way, and he uh, comes to a saving knowledge of Christ himself. So it's a great, great book. Then uh, don't miss Ben-Hur. Don't just settle for the movie. The, the, the book is just wonderful. Uh, Lou Wallace that wrote that was a general in the uh, Civil War and um, came to Christ after the war was over and studied um, theology and came to write that book. It's a great story. And then, of course, Eric Metaxas uh, wrote Luther, Bonhoeffer, about Derek Bonhoeffer. Uh, Great stories to read. And don't ever miss, you know, if you can, you need to read Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. The musical (laughs) version, uh, the movie is great, but there's things that, you know, like all of these things, uh, that are in the book that you just, that, you know, the, the movie just misses. In fact, actually, if I back up to the Spiral Road, they made a movie of that in the 50s starring Rock Hudson as Drago, the main character in it. But the storyline is completely different. Uh, you know, they're basically the same, but they miss his conversion to Christ, obviously. I mean, that's, that's not where it, they went with it. But Les Miserables, great. And then Pilgrim's Progress, written in around 1675, almost, you know, like 350 years ago. They're not sure of the exact date that he wrote this, but if you remember, he was jailed in England. He was a Puritan preacher, and he didn't have a license to preach because the Church of England didn't want to give him this license. And so he went to jail rather than um, submit to the Church of England. And while he was in there, he wrote this book, Pilgrim's Progress. And how many in here have read that book? Okay, you can't read it enough times. Uh, we were, Patrice and I were at the beach a few weeks ago, or uh, a while back, actually, and um, where I got the idea to do this uh, lesson. And I took my Kindle down. You can get this Pilgrim's Progress on Kindle for free. Um, so it's real easy to get. And they have the original language, and then they have versions that are written in modern English. And Patrice asked me to read to her, so I started reading this passage. And it's so instructive, because if you're familiar with the story, uh, the main character in Pilgrim's Progress is, this is all kind of a dream that the author is having, okay? So he's describing this dream. And in this dream, Christian is living in a place called the City of Destruction. And he realizes that the city is going to be destroyed. And this is all an allegory for our world and for, you know, what we as individuals are facing. And so Christian uh, takes off, but he realizes he has to leave his wife and his children behind because they can't be convinced to follow him. And when he takes off, he realizes that he's got this burden on his back, this backpack, and it's his sin. And along the way, early on in the journey, he meets uh, Christ and um, 
is relieved of that burden that's on his back, and all of a sudden he's free then to go on this journey to the celestial city. And he meets all of these characters along the way, and each character is named for some uh, human characteristic, uh, some aspect of our character that uh, is descriptive. And it's just a, a fun read in a lot of ways. It's uh, entertaining to see how he, he states things. It's uh, instructive in that almost every sentence is loaded with some meaning. You can't begin to appreciate uh, this until you've read it several times, I think. Um, I'll, I'll, and I want to spend uh, a little bit of time, the rest of our time here, reading some of these passages out of um, this book. And this is kind of along his journey uh, to the celestial city. And, you know, uh, at one point he falls in, into the um, um, swamp of despond. So, you know, a lot of people became despondent there, but Christian pulls himself out of there and, and goes on his way. And he meets different traveling apa- uh, companions. And at one point he meets up with um, a guy named Faithful. And so I want to pick up and read. I'm going to skip around in this a little bit here, but I think you'll see what I'm talking about and why I think this is important for developing a worldview, uh, a Christian worldview, and for understanding not only what we believe, but what how the world views things. So <clears throat> Faithful is explaining to Christian an event that happened to him in his own particular journey before they hooked up. He says, Now when I had walked halfway up the hill, I looked behind myself and saw someone coming after me, moving as swift as the wind. He overtook me just about the place where the shady resting place is located. That's the place where I sat down to rest, Christian said, but being overcome with sleep, it was there that I lost the scroll out of my chest pocket as I slept. Faithful says, but let me tell you the rest of the story, good brother, Faithful said. Just as soon as the man overtook me, without a word, he knocked me down to the ground and left me lying as there is like one dead. But when I revived a little and came to my senses, I asked, why had he treated me that way? He said, it was because of my secret fondness for Adam the first. With that, he struck me again with another deadly blow to my chest and beat me down to the ground. So once again, I lay crumpled at his feet as if dead. When I came to myself the second time, I cried out to him for mercy. But he said, I don't know how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down to the ground again. It was clear that he would have finished me off if it hadn't been for a man who came by at that time and demanded that he stop his assault. Who was this man? Christian said. Faithful said, At first, I didn't recognize him. But as he went by, I noticed the holes in his hands and his side. And I concluded that he was our Lord. So I continued up the hill. Then Christian, that man who overtook you was Moses. Christian explained, he doesn't spare anyone. So he's he's talking about the law, if you don't catch that. Nor does he know how to show mercy to those who disobey the law. Faithful nodded his agreement. I know well what you say is true because this was not the first time we had met. He was the one who came to me when I lived securely at the home, at my home in the city of destruction. He told me that he would burn my house down over my head if I stayed there. So the, the law, you see, the saying is instructful to us, but it's also brutal and unforgiving. So then I want to skip up a little bit to another guy they meet. And um, we'll pick up here. The author is saying, I saw in my dream that as they went on, Faithful happened to look to one side of the way and saw a man whose name was Talkative. He walked for a distance beside them because in this place there was enough room for them all to walk side by side. He was a tall man. Get this. He was a tall man and more handsome at a dense distance than when close at hand. To this man, faithful addressed himself 
in this manner as they drew near. Friend, which way are you going? Are you going to the heavenly country? Talkative said, Yes, I am headed to that very same place. That's good, Faithful said. I hope you will join us. By all means, I have every intention of being your traveling companion. Faithful motioned for him to join them. To, uh, for him to join them. Come on with us then and let us spend our time talking about things that are profitable. Certainly, certainly, Talkative stepped in line with them. To talk about the things that are good is most enjoyable with you or anyone else. I am glad to have met someone inclined to such a discussions. To tell you the truth, there are few who care to spend their traveling time in this way. Instead, they rather discuss things that are quite unprofitable. In fact, this is something that has often troubled me. Indeed, Faithful agreed. That is something to be disturbed about, for the things worthy of conversation are the things of the God of heaven. I certainly admire your attitude, Talkative said, for you speak with conviction, and I might add what else is so pleasant and so profitable as to talk about the things of God. For instance, if a man delights in such wonderful things as that, what could be more pleasurable to talk about than the history or mystery of such things? Or if a man loves to talk about miracles, wonders, or signs, what else will he find such things so delightfully recorded and so sweetly penned as in the Holy Scriptures? That is true, Faithful admitted, but the real purpose of such discussion is that we should be benefited by such things in our talk. That should be our intended focus. That's exactly what I said, Talkative went on, because talking about things is most profitable, since by so doing a man may gain knowledge about many things. For instance, generally speaking, he may gain knowledge about the futility of earthly things and the benefit of things above. More specifically, he may learn the necessity of the new birth, this insufficiency of our works, the need of Christ's righteousness, etc. Besides, by such talk of religion, a man may learn of what it means to repent, to believe, to pray, to suffer, or the like. Plus, by such profitable discussion, a man may learn about the great promises and the consolations of the gospel, and with such knowledge find personal comfort. Along with this, a man may learn to refute false opinions, to vindicate the truth, and also to instruct the ignorant. Faithful said, this is true, and I'm glad to hear these things from you. Unfortunately, Talkative broke in, the lack of this perspective is the reason so few understand the need of faith and the necessity of the work of grace in their soul in order to obtain eternal life. As a result, they ignorantly live according to the work of the law by which no man can enter the kingdom of heaven. Faithfully quickly jumped in as Talkative took a breath. But do allow me to say that heavenly knowledge of these truths is the gift of God. None can attain these things by human effort, let alone by talking about them. I know this very well, Talkative said, with a dismissive wave of his hand, for a man can receive nothing less than has been given to him from heaven. All is of grace, not of works. I would quote a hundred scriptures that confirm this. Well then, faithful, looked Talkative in the eye, what one good topic shall we discuss at this time? Whatever you like, I'm willing to talk about heavenly things or earthly things, moral things or evangelical things, sacred things or secular things, past things or future things, foreign things or domestic things, essential things or incidental things, provided that the discussion is for our profit. Faithful was becoming impressed with his new traveling companion and stepped closer to Christian, who had been walking by himself all this time. Faithful leaned closer to Christian and said, what a brave companion we have here. Surely this man will make a very excellent um, pilgrim. A slight smile played on Christian's lips. This man with whom you are so taken will captivate a multitude with his words, provided they are not familiar with him. You mean to say you know him then? Know him, Christian asked. Yes, and better than he knows himself. Seriously? Then tell me who he is. His name is Talkative. He lives in a town, the town that we came from. I know destruction is large, but I'm surprised you don't, the city, destruction is large, but I'm surprised you don't know who he is. Faithful scratch his head. Whose son is he, and exactly where does he live? He is the son of Saywell, Christian said. He lives on Prating Row, and we all know him and call him by the name of talkative of Prating Row. In spite of his eloquent manner of speaking, he remains a wretched fellow. Well, he seems to be a rather attractive man, 
Yes, Christian agreed. That's how he appears to people who are not well acquainted with him. He looks best from a distance, but up close, he's really quite ugly. Your saying that he is an attractive man brings to mind what I have observed in the work of a painter whose pictures look best at a distance, but up close, they are not so good looking. Are you joking? Faithful asked. Since you smiled, I'm thinking you may have been joking. Oh, sorry, you took my smile, uh, mistook my smile because God forbid I should make this a laughing manner or that I should accuse this man falsely. I'm going to tell you more about him so that you understand why I say what I say. This man will accept any company as long as he allow, is allowed to talk. Though he will now talk with you in the same way he will enjoy a conversation in a tavern. And the more he drinks, the more he things he has to talk about. Religion has no place in his heart or house or conversation. All that he stands for depends on his mouth. His religion is to make a noise with it. I can't believe it. That means that I have been greatly deceived by this man. Deceived? Ha! You may be sure of it, but remember the proverb, they say to do, but do not do. And he's actually quoting from Matthew 23, 3, where it says, Therefore, whatever they bid you to observe, observe it and do it, but do not act according to their works, for, um, but do not act according to their works, for they say and do not do it. And then <clears throat> he goes on, he says, But the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. And he's referencing 1 Corinthians 4.20. He talks about prayer, repentance of faith, and of the new birth, but he only knows how to talk about them. I have visited his family and observed him from both at both home and abroad, and I know what I say is the truth. His house is empty, is as empty of religion as the white of an egg is devoid of flavor. There is no prayer offered in his house, nor any sign of repentance for sin. Yes, even an animal serves God far better than talkative. To all who know him, he is very... He is the very stain, reproach, and shame of religion. Because of his reputation, the neighborhood in which he lives hardly has a good word to say about him. The common people who really know him say, a saint abroad and a devil at home. His, for, his poor family would agree with me. His impolite and mean-spirited person and such a bitter complainer and unreasonable man with his servants and they are at a loss as to how to speak to him or fulfill their duties. Men who have any dealings with him say it is better to deal with a barbarian trader than with him, for fairer dealings they will have at their hands. This talkative, if possible, will go behind their backs to defraud, entice, and outsmart them. Besides, he brings up his sons to follow in his footsteps. He, if he finds that he has a foolish timidity in any of them. That's what he calls the first sign of tender consequence. He calls them fools and stupid and blockheads. For this reason, he will rarely employ them or even recommend them to others. In my opinion, his wicked lifestyle causes many to stumble and fall and will be the ruin of many more unless God intervenes. Well, my brother faithful answered, from what you say, I'm compelled to believe you, not only because you have personally known him, but because you offered your report with a Christian attitude. I can't imagine that you've told me these things out of ill will, but rather see your motive as love for the truth. If I didn't know him any more than you, I might have thought of him the same way you did at first. If I had received such information from the hands of those who are enemies to religion, I would have thought it to be slanderous. Unfortunately, the names and reputations of good men often suffer and are defamed by such messages as his. This isn't just my opinion. I can prove him guilty of all the things and many more that are just as bad. Besides, good men are ashamed of him. They can neither call him brother nor friend, nor those who know him. The mere mention of his name makes them blush. Well, faithful said, I see that saying and doing are two things. From now on, I shall be more careful to observe this difference. And it's 25 after, and I could go on. This passage goes on for quite a while. And anyway, he's perplexed. Faithful goes on and is perplexed about how to handle this uh, traveling companion that's now walking up in front of uh, him. So Christian gives him some instructions um, about how to handle this. 
and um, ask faithful to just ask him some questions. And let me see if we can find that. <clears throat> Faithful finally confronts him and asks him about his own personal walk. And, of course, Faithful really doesn't want, or uh, Talkative doesn't want to talk about that. Faithful goes on and says, talks about what Christian had told him. And he says, other people say that you are a spot or stain among Christians and that religion suffers because of your ungodly conversation and lifestyle. Some have already stumbled because of your wicked ways and more are in danger of having their faith shipwrecked because of the way you practice your religion. For your religion involves meeting at a tavern and promotes qualities such as covetousness, uncleanness, swearing, lying, and making friends with worldly people, and more. The proverb that describes a harlot, harlot is true about you, that she is a shame to all women. In the same way, you are a shame to all genuine Christians. Talkative's lips turn down at the corners into a slight frown. Since you seem so quick to listen to what others have to say about me and to judge me so rashly, I can't do anything but come to the conclusion that you are an irritable and or depressed person who is not fit to carry on such a conversation so that I have to say farewell. Christian came up to Faithful and said, I told you how this would end. So anyway, it just goes on. It's just entertaining, but it gives a lot of insight, I think, into even people that we run into today. Talkative. Do you know somebody like that? that likes to talk about religion, but when you look at how their life is, their deeds speak a whole different story. And also, I think it's instructive even how Christian instructed faithful here to confront him about his lifestyle and the consequence of what happened to that. Better that he do that um, than just tolerate uh, him. So anyway, I, I hope this was entertaining. I know a little different than um, um, w- what you're used to, but uh, the, you know, the purpose of this, uh, to give you this reading list, uh, number one,